Thank you, Rich, for praying so carefully and thoughtfully for us this evening. Uh, if you have your Bible open, I hope you do, uh, to the passage you just read, just keep it open right there. Uh, that's, the, that's the text we will be talking through today, so I will be constantly referring to that text uh, this evening, so you'll, you'll want to have that open. If you don't have that open, you'll find that this talk gets very boring very fast. So I'd encourage you to, to have it open to that text. Th- there is another passage we're going to start off reading, though, and that's uh, in Isaiah 32, verses 12 to 18, and that's on page 717 in that red Bible. So if, if you see that red Bible in front of you on page 717, I'm actually going to read from that fairly soon, not immediately, but fairly soon, and then we'll go back to Galatians. So I would encourage you to open that and read with me when it comes time to do so. That's Isaiah 32, 12 to 18, page 717 in the Red Pew Bible. The opening scene of the Bible presents us with a magnificent creation by an almighty God. And the center of this creation is a beautiful garden, a lush garden, a garden that is filled with life. And the caretakers of this garden, Adam and Eve, that's what the Bible calls the first two humans, were these beautiful reflections of God's creation. And they were were beautiful reflections of his rule and his authority on earth. And then Satan enters the story. The hearts of these first humans were allured by Satan, they were captured by Satan, and sin erupts into their hearts and they rebel against God. Immediately, decreation begins. The beautiful order that God had in, in creation begins unraveling. Now, Genesis 2 tells us that to create another human is painful for a woman. To continue living is hard work because the ground is hard and the ground is cold. It's now infested with thorns. The garden has weeds infested with the flowers. God is telling everyone that his curse is upon all of humanity and all of his creation. And so Genesis 3 on decreation begins to ripple through a once perfect creation. So fast forward several, several centuries and years. And God gives a promise to Israel, this small, somewhat insignificant nation, that he would bring them back and actually plant them in a land like that beautiful garden. So imprinted on Israel's dreams, okay were images of fruitful vines and thornless fields and, most importantly, obedient hearts. So now we get to Isaiah 32, 12 to 18. And we have here a glimpse into the struggle between Israel's near future and their distant future. You see, the the nation of Israel was called to be God's kingdom people. This little light shining to all the other nations of what God's kingdom of justice and beauty looks like, right? But they had hard 
disobedient hearts. And because of this, Isaiah is telling them, listen, Israel, your immediate future is going to be very dark and painful. The land that God promised to you that would be fruitful and like the Garden of Eden will be nothing like it. It will become desolate. But in that quite difficult statement, Isaiah says there is a better future when the Spirit comes. So let's read Isaiah 32, 12 to 18. He's speaking to to the women of Israel here, but this is just one group within, it's really to, to Israel as a whole. Beat your breasts, verse 12, for the pleasant fields and for the fruitful vines and for the land of my people. Commentary real quick. The land that you're hoping for, this garden paradise, is not coming immediately. What is coming? A land overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all the houses of merriment and for this city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city deserted. The citadel and the watchtower will become a wasteland forever. It will be the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. So real quick, the land of Israel, this place that would be a garden paradise, where God's kingdom would be restored, it turns out it's going to be more like a desert and a wasteland. But there's an operative word here in verse 15, until. Until the Spirit is poured on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile land, and the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness will live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. When the Spirit comes, God will restore his kingdom of justice and righteousness. The Spirit marks the new creation. We began with creation Sin enters and we have decreation. Everything begins to unravel. And the Spirit comes and promises a new and, in fact, better creation. Well, I hope you noticed that one of the themes in the letter that we're looking at in the book of Galatians is all about what happens when the Spirit comes. Paul's been hammering on the Spirit, the Spirit is here, the Spirit is here. Don't go back to the old age, you're in the new age. You see, the plot twist, the Bible's a story, right? And the plot twist in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is that the new creation erupts in the hearts of Christians before it erupts over the whole physical universe. That's the plot twist. In the last section of Galatians, Paul, who is likely dictating, right, he's speaking this letter orally to a secretary, now he picks up the pen himself to write a final note. In verse 11, we're on page 1172 now, Galatians 6, 11. He starts off saying, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Paul wants to give him one final reminder, so he hits the all caps button, which is slightly annoying on social media, but here it's, it's quite effective. 
He wants them to pay close attention. In this final section, Paul reminds his readers one last time that there are really two ways of approaching religion. And that means there's two ways of approaching God. There is rules-based religion that these agitators and the opponents in Galatians are advocating. And then there is this transformation-based religion, what Paul calls his gospel. And it's only the gospel that creates new hearts. So we're going to have two points. If you have the worship program, there are notes walking you through this this talk so you can have some kind of structure to it. There's not going to be any slides other than this one today. Um, so I'd, I'd encourage you to follow along with that. <coughs> and the first point is the failure or the rules-based religion. It's really the failure of rules-based religion. And here's the main idea of any kind of religion that is rules-based. If you keep the right rules, God will grant you salvation. If you keep the right rules, God will grant you salvation. So verse 12 here. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. One last time, we're reminded of these these agitators, these these Jewish teachers who crept into the Galatian church and they began telling the non-Jewish Christians, listen, it's great that you believe in Jesus and all. That's great, okay? But if you really want to be someone who's in God's family, if you really want to be forgiven by God, you also need to adopt this Old Testament law. In fact, if you want to be a true Jew like us, you need to be circumcised, because that's the sign of being a true Jew. And Paul has labored to make this counterpoint. If you rely on the law, if you rely on your... And and so we're not relying on the law, but I think you can make this implication. If you rely on your good behavior or your virtue or your rituals to access God's favor and forgiveness, you actually forsake God's forgiveness. If you could earn in any way God's forgiveness, Jesus' death on, on the cross is essentially meaningless. It's, it's as if you're saying, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross, but really, you didn't need to do that. Rules-based religion amounts to what we call moralism. You know, why is it deep that within our sinful human nature... We desperately desire to prove ourselves to God so that he owes us salvation. Rather than have God scoop us, our lifeless corpse up and breathe new life into us. Why is it that we want a God who we can force salvation out of because he owes it to us by our moralism? And and really, moralism is foolish on many accounts, Because we fail to even live up to our own moral code. So you might be here thinking tonight, listen, I really don't care about the the Bible's moral paradigm. I don't even think the Bible gets morality right. It's either too strict in certain parts, or it's not strict enough in other parts. But I want you to see tonight that moralism is a flawed approach even if the only thing you try to live by is your own moral standard, your own moral code. We all have one, right? Who lives up perfectly to their own ideals 
of love and justice and kindness. What I'm saying is, if you can't manage to live by the moral expectations you set for yourself, how in the world are you ever going to live according to the moral expectations that God sets for you? The quick answer is that you can't. But one of the primary problems with rules-based religion is that at its fundamental level, it's motivated by selfishness rather than a desire to fellowship with God. So we looked at the basic idea, now we're looking at the main motivation in verses 12 and 13. It's all, it's, rules-based religion is motivated by making oneself look good. Look at the first words of verse 12. Those who want to impress people. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised. Why? That they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. (coughs) This is one reason why non-religious people, I think, are, are highly skeptical, quite frankly, of religious people. They've seen religion used as a tool often to make people self righteous or arrogant. Non-religious people often see right through a religious veneer. Sure, you say you worship God, but really what you do is you worship yourself and you use God to do it. So, is, is, your, is your religion just a way of bolstering your self-image before others? Is your religiosity aimed at impressing others? Perhaps your religiosity is aimed at making you just be respectable. Friends, you might impress your friends, or you might impress your colleagues, or your neighbors with your rule-keeping, probably not as much as you think. But friends, God is not impressed with your good behavior. Good behavior is a good thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing. We, we talked all about good works last week and how they're necessary outflow of, of, of someone who's been transformed by the gospel. But God is not impressed by it. He's not impressed by your good kids. He's not impressed by your financial gift. He's not impressed by your parenting. He's not impressed by you moving your family all the way across the world to go serve him. It's home. Not impressed by it. You can't impress God. You can only be broken and dependent on God. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Paul gives another motivation for these troublemakers who are trying to forge rule, uh, force a rule-based religion in, in Galatia. Second half of verse 12. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They, they desire, these, these agitators de- desire comfortable religion rather than uncomfortable religion. Look at Paul's example on the other hand. In the, I think it's verse 17. His gospel allows him to bear the wounds of Jesus, right? So Paul's gospel often makes him very uncomfortable when the world persecutes him. 
And that's because rules-based religion is motivated not by getting God, but getting things from God. If you, if you approach religion that way, you're never going to sacrifice the comforts in this life for God because the comforts are your God and you're just using God to get them. Lastly, the main focus. What's the main focus of rules-based religion? It's conforming to outward standards of religion. These agitators, and if you don't understand why I keep on calling them that, that's what we've called the people who are creeping into the Galatian church all throughout the book of Galatians, okay? These agitators are consumed with the Galatians adopting the Old Testament law. They are consumed in verse 13 here with with Galatians taking on circumcision as an indication that they're obeying God. In rules-based religion, becoming a follower is of uh, becoming a follower of that religion is based primarily on your outward conforming to rituals and rules. Of course, the inward value of signs like circumcision were always aimed at the inner reality, even in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah says, "Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart." So this isn't a new thing. So Paul has spent this letter systematically dismantling rules-based religion. The kind of religion that puts forth rule-keeping as a path to earning God's favor and forgiveness. He's dismantled this this kind of religion that is motivated by impressing others and is motivated by getting things from God rather than getting God himself. He's dismantling the kind of religion that's primarily focused on conforming to external standards. But Paul's gospel is fundamentally different. It's not rules-based religion. It's transformation-based religion. Number two, transformation-based religion, which is Paul's gospel. And the main idea of the gospel is this. God has forgiven me, therefore I obey him. I'm accepted, and because I'm accepted by God, therefore I can now live a godly life. Galatians 2.16, many other uh, verses in Galatians make this point, but Galatians 2.16 particularly, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is precisely why Paul contrasts gospel motivation from rules-based religion so strongly in verse 14. Here's Paul's motivation. Verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the cross tears down anyone's ability to boast in himself. That's because you contribute nothing to your salvation. All you have to boast in is what Christ has accomplished for you. The only boast in transformation-based religion is Christ, and not just Christ abstractly, but Christ as he is on the cross. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? We boast in this thing that is the epicenter of extreme humiliation. 
The cross is the pride and joy of the Christian. Church, you know, visitors, this is why we keep the cross at the center of what we do here at REC. We sing about the cross. We preach about the cross. We pray about the cross. We talk in informal conversations about the cross. The sacraments are all about the cross. Because the cross is our only boast. It's the only place where we have any standing before God. It's the, it's the place where we can point to and say, God, you can accept me and you can be merciful to me. And you can be, you can not pour your judgment on me because the cross is ever, has, is my only boast. It's where, it's where my mercy and forgiveness was won already. The cross isn't this simply a religious ornament. It's not just a sentimental symbol for solidarity of the people who are oppressed. The cross is a cosmic event where sin was absolutely defeated. Why would you boast in what you are when every bit of when every bit of standing you have before God was won for you at the cross? No, you boast in that bloody cross, which is your salvation. And the cross, as Paul has taught us, is not only the place of Christ's death, it's also the place of our death. Verse 14, through the cross, I and you died to the world, Paul says, and the world died to me. The world here means everything in the world that stands against Christ and his redemption. You are united to Christ, you who are united to Christ, are cut off from everything that stands opposed to Christ and his kingdom. You're dead to it, Paul says. Yes, the world still allures you, okay? The flesh, which is your sinful nature, still struggles inside of you. But it is a defeated world for you, Christian. It is a defeated sinful nature that opposes you. It's already conquered. The cross marks the death of Christians. Paul's saying, if you're going to boast, boast in your death. Your death to sin through Jesus. But I really want you to see something here that connects this passage to the storyline of all human history. The great problem for humanity is death. Death enters God's creation when humanity sins against God. Death is the great curse upon those who were designed to reflect God's glory and his rule and his beauty, but they reject it and they try to replace God's rule. Death is our greatest enemy. No one can avoid it. No person ever has avoided it. Death is just the constant reminder on all humanity that God considers your sin deeply serious. And it's out of the grip of everyone. It's coming. We can't get around it. For now. But Paul wants you to get this. Christian, your death occurred on the cross. 
God's judgment against your sin happened on the cross, since you have been crucified with him, Galatians 2.20. And what that means for us is that the new creation is God's answer to the problem of death. The new creation is God's answer to the problem of death. Here's the main focus of the gospel here, of transformation-based religion. Verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What counts is the new creation. So, So first he says, circumcision counts for nothing. You have lots of rules and standards you live by. God says, who cares? But non-circumcision counts for nothing as well. You have no rules. You have no restraint. You have absolute freedom. God says, who cares? Isn't this how the world divides, right? People either pride themselves in having all the right rules and thinking they're superior, morally superior because of it. Others think... We have no rules, we have no restraints, and we're, and we're superior because of it, in our freedom. God says, I don't give a rip about all that. In fact, if that's where you're going to take pride, you are part of the old world that's passing away. What matters is the inner man. What matters is whether God has transformed your heart into a new creation. The gospel is God rescuing broken, repentant sinners and transforming their hearts into people that are fit for his kingdom. The gospel is God rescuing broken, repentant sinners and transforming their hearts into people that are fit for his kingdom. Do you remember the passage that we read at the beginning of this talk from Isaiah? The new creation was the long-awaited hope. It was etched into the minds of every Israelite. What comes into your mind when you think of the new creation? Are you only aware of it when you're thinking of a detailed chart about the end times? The plot twist of the New Testament is that the new creation has actually broken into the hearts of those who have put their faith in Christ before it's broken over the whole earth. Paul wants to transform your vision of the end times. We're not simply waiting for God's kingdom to arrive. Paul wants you to know that God's kingdom has arrived. In Christ, through the Spirit, in our hearts. Paul would tell you, Christian, you want to see the new creation, Christian? Look in the mirror. Oh, God will one day transform this physical earth into a new Eden. That is the hope of the Christian message. That is the hope of the Bible. He will transform this world into a lush garden. The wine will flow. The land will be rich. Pain will be an afterthought. Unrest will be in the rearview mirror. 
the curse of death will be gone. But until then, Christ has transformed our hardened and our darkened hearts into the soft soil of the Spirit that produces the rich fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. The spiritual garden of Eden has taken residence in our hearts, if you are in Christ. We are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. True religion, we all want to know what true religion is, right? Even very secular people. True religion is death to sin and self and dependence on the God who brings new creation life. Your rules count for nothing. Your spiritual resume counts for nothing. Your material goods count for nothing. Your impressive job counts for nothing. Your holiday home counts for nothing. Your bank accounts count for nothing. Your intellectual achievements count for nothing. Your political activism counts for nothing. The only thing that counts for something is whether God has transformed you, your heart, into a new creation. Transformed you into a person fit for his kingdom. And then, actually, everything counts for something, doesn't it? In the last few verses, we have the result of transformation-based religion. Paul's final words with the Galatians aim to give them a glimpse of what is theirs if they embrace this true gospel. Inclusion, peace, mercy, grace. (coughs) Let's start with inclusion. Do you see that reference to the Israel of God in verse 16? Verse 16, Israel of God. There's been some debate over the years in, in regard to what that's, who that's referring to. In summary, some Bible teachers have historically made a very, and we're not going to get into this, but short summary. Some Bible teachers have got, have believed that there's, there's a sharp distinction between Israel as an ethnic people and the church throughout all the Bible. So they teach essentially that any time you see Israel referred to, it must be speaking of ethnically defined people and not the church. Okay? But I want to remind you of the purpose of Paul's whole letter. You don't need to be circumcised in order to be, in order to be a full member of God's family. That's his point. This means you don't need to be Jewish or become Jewish, by circumcision in this context, in order to be part of Israel, God's people. To take on circumcision, which is, in this context, to make yourself physically Jewish, okay? Or to be born into a certain ethnicity does not make you a recipient of God's promise. It is those of faith who are God's people. It would make no sense at the end of this letter to undo everything, every argument he's made by saying, actually, peace and mercy are are for those who are of Jewish descent. No. 
No, Paul is reiterating that true Israel, those who are in truly in God's family, are those in whom the new creation has erupted by faith in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are the Israel of God. Embracing the gospel gives you a new family, and it gives you a new citizenship. This is God's way of saying, at the end of the letter, you belong. Regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of skill, or intellect, or status, or moral resume, regardless of all that, you belong. If you've embraced Christ. You fit here. Just a side note, this is, this is why racial discrimination, all these forms of discrimination on any other level have no place in the church, right? Because God's not discriminating. And he's actually saying the, the opposite of the gospel is to discriminate along those lines. You are the Israel of God if you embrace Christ. If you are part of the new creation, you also have peace. You enjoy peace with God. So your sin made God your enemy. But Christ has reconciled your relationship with God, and if God is no longer your enemy, you don't have to worry about any other human enemies. Paul would say in Romans, if God is for us, who in the world can be against us? You are promised peace from God because you have been given mercy. Mercy. Jesus told a story about two men who came up to the temple. But we're, I'm, I want to retell this story as we, as we close here in, in our own terms. I want to I make it a modern story. Jesus told a story about two men who came to church to worship God. One man was a religious leader, even a human rights activist. This man was very thankful to God. And as he approached the church, he thanked God for giving him superior moral and intellectual knowledge. He prayed to God and on his way into church, thank you that I don't have primitive views on morality like all these other people. Thank you, Lord, that I haven't stained my reputation like so many others here. Thank you. Next to him was a man who had spent many years working for a government, a corrupt government, that oppressed people. Let's call it a modern-day version of a Roman tax collector. This man was acutely aware that he had oppressed others. His spiritual resume was lacking. But this man sat in the back of the church. He grabbed his chest and he pled with God, Be merciful. Be merciful to me, a sinner. 
My only shot of forgiveness and is, is your mercy, so be merciful. Jesus asked us, what man went home and received God's approval and forgiveness on that day? It wasn't the religious man. It wasn't the morally astute political activist. It was the broken sinner pleading for mercy. Friend, if you think, by the way, that that story is about political activism, which is a great thing, you have missed the point. It's about being a broken sinner, no matter what you think your moral resume says. The God of mercy loves to dispense mercy. He delights in being merciful. It brings him pleasure to bring mercy to the people who know their only shot of favor and forgiveness and life is mercy. His glory and beauty shine brighter because of the dispensing of mercy he gives. So Christians who have received mercy, actually non-Christians who have received mercy, Let's start our prayers with, or how often do we start our prayers with, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's that's the posture of a Christian. Paul closes the book in the same way he opens it. Verse 18, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. God promises grace, his undeserved favor. He he promises grace to all those who embrace the gospel, who have been crucified with Christ, who have been adopted into God's family, Galatians 4, the Israel of God, Galatians 6, who have died to Christ, Galatians 2, and to the world, Galatians 6 who have been adopted into God's family, and who have been transformed into new creations, Galatians 6. Now, he says, go in his grace. That means, as you live, as you make decisions, as you navigate trials and oddities of life, as you relate to others, do so with the knowledge and joy that God takes pleasure in you. Let the gospel of forgiveness and mercy won for you on the cross be so central to your thinking that it washes over everything you do, Galatians, and people of Rotherham Evangelical Church. And that's why it's very appropriate that when we end our services, we end with a benediction as well, like Paul does here in this letter, and like he does in basically every letter. He says, that grace, that transforming power, that undeserved favor, go in it. Let it be central to who you are and how you think. That's why we close the way we do. Let's pray. Sing a song and have a benediction.